We are Radio Catskill. Live from Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, this is a local edition with news and information. I'm your host, Jason Dolp. Coming up, we'll get the latest local news from Ruby Rayner of the River Reporter. Get an update on where the Sullivan County's uh, drug-free task force is at. And the potential of electric buses coming to our area. And Honesdale has a brand new borough president. We'll learn who he is. And for those of us who don't know, we'll, we'll also learn what a borough president is. First up, last week we had the State of the State address for Governor Kathy Hochul, which uh, we said at that time was kind of the kickoff of the budgeting process in New York State, and then that continued yesterday as Governor Kathy Hochul in New York uh, started to roll out her budget items. And her new budget plan released yesterday uh, holds the line on spending increases, but it might hit some headwinds in the state legislature. Karen DeWitt has more. While Hochul is a Democrat and both houses of the legislature are led by Democrats, the governor's budget is not guaranteed to be an easy sell to the Senate and Assembly. One item expected to meet resistance is the governor's proposal to keep state aid flat for some suburban and rural school districts. Hochul and her budget office managed to close a $4.3 billion projected deficit by tamping down the rate of spending growth in education and other areas. It's a lot more pleasant to say yes to everybody. But now we're called upon to make the tough decisions. Hochul is proposing an increase of $825 million for schools, but that's far less than the record spending over the previous two years. And she wants to funnel much of those funds to the state's poorest schools, many of them in New York cities. The plan would end the decades-long tradition known as Hold Harmless. That ensures that no school district, even the state's wealthiest, will ever get less money in the state budget than it did in the previous year. As much as we may want to, we are not going to be able to replicate the massive increases of the last two years. No one could have expected the extraordinary jumps to recur, in aid to recur annually. The Republican minority leader in the Senate, Robert Ort, says some GOP senators who represent suburban and rural districts object to the proposal. He says he believes it's no coincidence that the school districts that are less likely to receive cuts are represented by Democrats in the legislature. It's all rural and suburban districts that are going to see cuts in spending, in some cases drastically, and not the cities. And, and that, to me, really smacks of, of hypocrisy, but it also smacks of partisanship. Ort predicts that some Democratic senators who represent suburban districts will also be opposed to the idea. If the governor's plan is taken at face value, I have to believe that my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are going to have something to say about this. Advocates for school funding who have been closely allied with Democrats in the legislature, including the New York State United Teachers Union, are also against ending Hold Harmless. In a statement, NYSET President Melinda Person says the critical need to consistently support our students and educators should not vary with the fluctuations in our state tax revenue. 
Senate Democratic Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins sought to minimize any public friction over the proposal and other items in the budget, including the governor's plan to trim $1 billion out of the Medicaid budget. That comes as the state's safety net hospitals say they are nearing financial ruin due to low Medicaid reimbursement rates. Stewart-Cousins says everything will be discussed. We're going to talk about her approaches to, to a lot of things in the budget. That's why this is going to be an exciting season. We can't wait. In a few weeks, the Senate and Assembly will present their own budget counterproposals. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty says he's not ruling out some changes after he's gone through the plan with his Democratic members. That may include spending increases and raising revenues, possibly through tax increases for the wealthy. In dealing with the members of the conference, I have to see what the spending, the, the wish list is, and then we have to try to see if we have enough revenue to match this. Any proposals for tax hikes will also create a budget roadblock. Hochul has already said she will not accept any new tax increases, saying New Yorkers' taxes are already high enough. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. And thank you to Karen DeWitt and New York Public News Network for that report. And uh, th- this is just the start of the budgeting process in New York State, where the state of the state runs into the budgeting process, and now you hear uh, negotiations are already beginning. Uh, New York State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins quoted in that piece as saying it's it's going to be interesting. We are going to follow it for you because not only is it interesting, it can get a bit complicated. And to help us uh, follow this information, we'll have our regular weekly check-ins with New York Focus. They tend to do deep dives on all New York politics, especially the budgeting process. Last night here on the local edition, I spoke with uh, Chris Gilardi, and he is a uh, criminal justice reporter for New York Focus. So he was focusing in on the crime-related aspects of the governor's budget proposal. If you missed that conversation, it's online at WJFFRadio.org. We're also live streaming there if you ever miss us, WJFFRadio.org. Now, moving on to uh, local news, it's time for our weekly check-in with the River Reporter for the latest headlines. And for this local news roundup, we turn to the River Reporter's own reporter, Ruby Rayner, joining us live on the phone. Ruby, thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's start off uh, a number of things we want to talk about tonight, but uh, I want to start with uh, there's a new borough president in Honesdale, borough president, borough president. Uh, but <laughs> before you introduce us to who he is, can you give us an idea of what a borough president is? Because I don't think uh, we have one of those uh, on, on the New York side of the river. Yes, I would be happy to. So... A borough president similar sits in a similar position to, you know, a chairperson. So it's their job to kind of take on those more clerical um, duties in terms of legislating, um, and they also kind of set the tone. Um, Councillor Deva Nielsen of Honesdale Borough um, said that they're really like the person who just like keeps an even keel of the council and makes sure everything stays civil. Um, and it's pretty much to craft the agenda. And I guess the other difference is that they're paid slightly more. Um, so they make eighteen uh, uh, $1,875, uh, whereas a regular counselor makes $1,750. So a slight increase there for their, for their extra efforts. And so this is different than the mayor. Honesdale also has a mayor, correct? Correct, yes. 
So this is um, the representative of the councillors. They're kind of like the president of all the councillors, and the mayor um, sits separately. Okay, so who's our new borough president in Honesdale? And I feel like I should give like a drum roll. Um, it's James Leo Brennan Jr., um, which I think some people probably are familiar with his name because he's served on the Honesdale Borough Council um, on and off for the last 54 years. So he definitely um, has some experience under his belt in taking this position. Okay, so this is a new uh, Honesdale Borough president, but not not a new face in Honesdale. No, no, certainly not. Um, and he was ended up becoming the president after um, Michael Agello, who served for the past um, eight years as the council president, but chose to not run for re-election. Um, and Agello was named president last February after the council agreed to have someone replace um, Hamill, and there was some friction with him. Um, due to, I think, people's, you know, how they perceived his, his leadership style. So that kind of opened up that seat, and um, Brennan then um, was named the president. But notably, before he was, um, both Rogers and Mundy, who are also on the council, um, are newly on the council, they turned the council, which was previously last year, all male, and they're the first. Um, they like changed that. They're both women, and they were both nominated before Brennan, but they um, abstained because they said that they wanted to gain more experience before taking on that role. But just noteworthy that they um, were nominated before Brennan eventually was named the president. And I see the the subheadline for this article is play nice mayor t- and that's in quotes play nice mayor talks about leadership in local politics. So is that kind of the tone of this moment? People are looking forward to uh, working nicely together. Yes, interestingly, it seems like to be the tone in a lot of different these these first kind of reorganization meetings um, when like new members are coming in trying to put. Um, old kind of differences and disagreements to bed um, and calls for unity is definitely definitely being heard here in Honesdale Borough Council. And I, I feel like locally um, in, in all of these kind of reorganization meetings that I've been listening in on. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's a different situation. Sullivan County government is different than uh, Honesdale Borough government. But, I mean, it sounds very similar to what we're hearing coming out of the legislature. And what we heard from the electorate in a number of ways in November is that people want to see more getting done with less uh, strife and drama. So I know that Honesdale, Sullivan County, different places, but it seems to be a similar message that we're hearing from the electorate and those who've been elected. Yeah, and I think it's really also about a call to, um, which which um, was mentioned um, by the mayor, but to not let kind of national politics uh, seep, or like national politics and the divisiveness that's happening on that level seep into um, what's going on locally. Um, and for local politics to focus on bettering and working for the the people that they are. That, that elected them, who are right there with them. So that's definitely, I think, another um, undercurrent of the calls for unity. Yeah, that, and that's a specific thing that was popping up, especially in our pre- and post-election coverage. People, Some people specifically saying the type of unity they're looking for is we want local politics essentially to be devoid of the 
division at the national level. So good news from Holmesdale, Ruby. And now you did a, a real deep dive into uh, where the Sullivan County Drug Prevention Task Force is. It was a big year last year with the designation of the, the high traffic uh, uh, designation area and all of that. But they, they had a, a semi-annual meeting that kind of wrapped things up for last year and set things up for this year. Is that correct? Yep, exactly. Um, I can, you know, unfortunately, it's still the opioid um, crisis in Sullivan County is still um, ongoing, and it's definitely important to continue to look at what the drug task force is doing um, in order to stop this from from happening. And so um, that meeting that they held just before the new year um, rounded out the end of a three-year study that was um, happening in the county as well as across um, 67 counties in four states. Um, it's like one of one of the biggest intervention studies in a, in a long, long while um, with Columbia University. So as that study kind of came to a close, there needed to be a look at um, how the how the county was going to continue to sustain the programs that had been started by the funding from the Columbia University study and um, continue that under the Sullivan County Drug Task Force. Yeah, and I want to remind listeners that we spoke about this healing community studies in a number of ways on air here, uh, not just during the regular editions of the local edition, uh, but did a deep dive on the Kingfisher project. Uh, we also had uh, announcements that we aired in conjunction uh, with the healing communities project, you know, reminding people uh, essentially to, that there's there's medications available to help with with uh, addiction. Uh, so this was a big deal, this whole Healing Communities project. What what happens next And now that that's wrapping up? Yeah, I think one of the things that the Healing Communities study was able to actually do for the county was to set, set the county up um, in a more strategic way to tackle the opioid crisis. So before... Um, there was the healing community study was kind of separate and disjointed from the Sullivan County Drug Task Force, which was formerly under a different name. Um, and now they have kind of organized it where there's these different pillars um, with all these different stakeholders in the community that range from, you know, doctors on the front lines to law enforcement, um, the district attorney's office, um, social services, uh, SALT, which is um, like a community organization, Catholic Charities, right? All of these kind of different stakeholders who can approach this crisis from a different angle and have different expertise to do so. So the study really saw that there was, there needed to be multiple different approaches happening simultaneously and was able to kind of move the county towards that structure, um, which is where the drug task force now sits and the interventions that went on as part of the study are just going to fall under those different um, pillars quite naturally, actually, um, and be sustained through the drug task force. Okay, so so these these are initiatives that were part of the study. They're not going to end. They're just going to get folded into uh, the, the task force existing uh, organizational structure. Yeah, an example would be the naloxone boxes, which um, are access to, to a drug that counteracts um, fatal overdoses. 
So those were funded um, in part by the study and will continue to be restocked and exist um, throughout the county. They're actually putting in more boxes um, and anything that there's needed to be like sustaining funding for, um, the county has said that they'll use opioid settlement funding um, to ensure that it's, it's going to remain. And I thank you for reminding me that because we actually have one of those Nalox boxes right here at the station. They're located at various places throughout the community. So they're there in case anybody uh, has an emergency, they can find those locations uh, on the web. But you're right. I forgot that that was also part of the Healing Communities study. That's what came out. And that's one of the ways that we were talking about it uh, on air here as well. Uh, Ruby, when we wrapped up, uh, last year, you know, our year in review, you dove down and focused primarily on housing issues and, uh, you know, the, this high rate of, of opioid addiction and drug addiction in general in Sullivan County. Is that in any way impacting it that, that you're seeing? And, and are people, were people talking about that at all at this meeting? Yeah, there was interestingly like a mention of kind of those intersection of, of issues. Um, you know, a lot of the time, one of the other things that, that came out that was kind of spurred by the, the study was uh, the Unite platform, which people, individuals, residents of the, of the county can go to and you can get kind of connected to a multitude of services, whether that be drug treatment, housing, um, you know, other medical treatment um, in one singular place to try to make it easier to uh, connect individuals who need certain services with them for everybody um, and housing is, is included in that. So it's like a lot of, you know, a lot of times it's like you're, you're dealing with multiple different um, issues at the same time and they oftentimes lean on one another, making it more difficult. And so kind of that idea of a holistic approach includes housing in it, which I think is really important. Um, and they are also going to look at, I think, discussing um, sober housing um, in addition to, like, kind of relating that conversation to the existing housing task force. So I'm interested to see how how they connect the two and liaise between the housing task force and the drug task force because there's obvious connections. Well, I'm interested in that too, but uh, if you're going to keep an eye on it, I'm sure you'll let us know. So that sounds good. Is there anything else from this story that you want folks to know? Um, I think I think that about covers it. I would say um, the Health and Human Services platform network, um, Unite Us, is accessible online for anyone who is interested in using it. It's a closed-loop referral network where folks can come and kind of present any challenge, and the service will hopefully connect them um, with the services that they need um, from a range of, you know, clothing, household goods, um, drug treatment, or anything of that kind. So that's available, and it's, and it's being provided by the county. Okay, and the article we've been talking about here uh, is by you, Ruby Rayner, and the title is Sullivan County Fights Highest in State Overdose Rate. It's up now at riverreporter.com. Ruby, uh, I know you have a couple other stories that I'd like to talk about. Are you good to stay with us for like another eight minutes or so if I take a quick break? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay, so we'll do that. We'll come back and we'll get to these other stories. It's our weekly news roundup with the River Reporter. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Local Edition. 
winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Radio Catskill supporters include Forage and Gather Market, now open seven days a week on Main Street in Hurleyville and five days a week on Main Street in Mountaindale, offering gourmet coffee and tea, grab-and-go, hot soup, groceries, and more. Menus and more information at foragecatskills.com. And listeners like you, who donate at wjffradio.org. This week on the Retro Cocktail Hour, we'll hear the new exotic sounds of the Tiger Club, vibraphonist Mark Riddle, and the Martini Kings. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Join us where the music is always shaken, not stirred. The Retro Cocktail Hour, coming up tonight at 7 on Radio Catskill. Absolutely, Daryl will be taking over for two hours. Don't be distracted by the name. It's a two-hour-long program, the Retro retro Cocktail Hour, coming right up after the Daily. Uh, but right now, welcome back. This is a local edition. I'm Jason Dolan. I'm talking to Ruby Rayner from the River Reporter. Uh, Ruby, uh, you've got a late-breaking story uh, in the River Reporter. Uh, it's by Pamela Tregotis, and this is about electric buses. Are electric school buses on their way to our area? Yes, we are in the electric age. Um, This is very interesting, and I found super fascinating just speaking with with Pamela on her investigation of this. But um, plainly, in New York State, based on new legislation, um, New York's electric school buses will be required, um, and administrators are, are asked, to move based on this state mandate towards away from diesel-powered and towards zero-emission um, school buses. And that will start in 2027, and they're being asked to complete this transition um, in 2035. And this kind of new mandate came to um, our attention through the El- Eldridge Central School meeting in which they were discussing how they were going to make this transition, what does that mean, um, and because they currently are one of the few school districts in addition to Monticello that still have their own um, bus service, like they don't contract out, and so they're going to need to determine how, how they're going to make this, this change. And it does come with, um, it costs more. So um, just to give listeners a sense, Tracy Ferrer, the district superintendent, said that diesel buses with, like, cameras, bells, and she said, like, the bells and whistles cost from 175000 to 185000 whereas an electric bus at its most basic is around 410000 So it's definitely a cost increase and is something that needs to be considered and, and planned out because of that. And this mandate must be part of the overarching uh, New York Climate uh, Act that's requiring that the this uh, basically an economy wide greenhouse gas emissions cut of forty percent by twenty thirty and eighty five percent by 
2050. So I've been wondering the different ways, and we've been tracking this on the local issue, talking about the different ways that this might be happening, what's the state doing, what's the state not doing. So there's actually a, a mandate for school buses to, to try to electrify state school bus fleet. Yes, yes. And I think they also based um, it on, like, usage. So because, right, school buses are consistently going to be used five days a week and, like, in a predictable fashion, they, you know, prioritize making sure that that transition away from diesel towards electric is happening in those high usage areas, and school buses are one of those. And is Eldred looking at a new bus garage? Is that in conjunction with this? Yes, yes. So, you know, in 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 this conversation about looking towards the future on, on what their school buses are going to look like, um, there's there was some issues that were brought up around um, the current garage, which they actually lease. Um, so they're gonna they're looking at potentially building a garage, and they're gonna go see um, officials are gonna go see the Monticello garage that uh, just recently was built, and kind of talk to them and, and listen to you know what worked, what didn't work, to try to get a sense for uh, what the Eldridge School District can maybe look towards and what's in their what's what's in the future for for them and what they could potentially avoid and do do okay and uh and i'm sorry is there anything else on that story you want to let folks know um just that though that this is um came out of the eldridge central school this is a this is statewide so it'll be it'll it would also be interesting um think we're going to look at um, how also these private companies, how they're going to adhere to these or if whether they also, how they're going to move towards these electric school buses. Because like I said, a lot of school districts contract out this, but they'll also um, need to adhere to this mandate. So. Right. And it'll be, we're first hearing about this through the Eldred School District, but it'll be also interesting to see how other school districts, you know, start encountering this issue and start addressing it. Definitely. Okay. And finally, you know, we talk to you about the stories that you've got in the River Reporter every week, but now we're going to wrap up talking about a story about something that was in the River Reporter decades ago. Is that right? Yes, yes. Um, everyone should definitely read this week's paper, grab it, read it online at com. There's a really sweet story um, about Kristen, who, as a teenager, wrote a short story in The River Reporter in 1985, and she recently reached out to try to find it again because she was publishing her first children's book, and this was where she wrote her first story. So um, it was really nice. I got to speak with her speak with her and kind of hear all about her life. She wrote it during kind of like a difficult time in high school. Um, and I felt that it was just like a really nice ode to the importance of local journalism and um, having that as a sustained aspect in the community for, for things like that. Um, so her story is very, very sweet. Um, the storybook, she just gave me a copy is also very, very sweet. So, um, it's just a really nice, it's a nice uplifting story, um, and I, I urge people to, to read it. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but I do have to ask. She called you folks looking for something that was in 
the River Reporter in 1985. That's that's uh, almost uh, 40 years ago. Um, can you at least tell us, were you able to find it? Yeah. Oh, easily. Um, the archives are super well organized. Shout out to Roger, um, who organizes the archives. And they are just meticulously in order. And so... We were able to find a copy and give her an original because there was enough of them for that issue, and then also just make a make a copy. So it's we have everything. We have like original pictures too, which is really cool. I geeked out, um, but yeah. <laughs> well, this is great, and uh, the original story is called "The Witch That." Almost wasn't, but here now, almost forty years later, the article that's up in the River Reporter is. Kristen Hofer revisits a spooky tale, and uh, it's by Ruby Rayner, who we've been speaking to this whole evening. Ruby, thank you so much for going over all of this news with us. Yeah, thank you so much. And remember, you can hear uh, Ruby bringing us local headlines on the weekend as well from New York and Pennsylvania. So be listening for that. And rejoin us right here this time next Wednesday. We'll do this again. River Reporter Weekly News Roundup live here on the local edition. Be listening tomorrow morning at 10 for Radio Chatskill with Tim Bruno. I've been your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much uh, for being here with me. Thank you for listening. Do keep listening here on air. And remember, we're always live streaming at WJFFRadio.org. It's WJFFRadio.org. Coming up, we've got the daily. After that, two hours of music from Daryl Brogdon on the Retro Cocktail Hour to get you through the end of the middle of the week here on your Wednesday evening. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support comes from Country House Realty, a boutique Catskills real estate brokerage with a new office in Livingston Manor. Country House Realty, exceptional spaces in beautiful places. More at countryhouserealty.com. From Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And from listeners like you who donate at 